Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 222 of the podcast. It's May 20th, 2015. Joining me today is Dr. Erin Dupree. She is the Chief Medical Officer and Vice President for the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare. Dr. Dupree is an OBGYN by training, and she was previously Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President for Medical Affairs at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. She's a certified Six Sigma Green Belt and is also a Team Steps Master Trainer. Now, one thing that we both have in common is growing up around the Detroit area, being exposed to the auto industry and the ideas of W. Edwards Deming early in our lives. So in the podcast today, topics include you know, her role and what the Center for Transforming Healthcare does, how she first got involved in healthcare and quality improvement, in particular Lean and Six Sigma, um, of the different estimates you know, about the number of patients harmed or killed each year due to preventable medical error, which numbers does she think are, are most accurate, what are some of the barriers to improvement in healthcare? And at the end of the podcast, she shares you know, a personal patient story um, that helped her see uh, some of the harm that occurs and the need for improvement in healthcare. So if you'd like to see Dr. Dupree's bio, learn more about the Center for Transforming Healthcare, there's links to all of that if you go to leanblog.org slash 222. Again, our guest is Dr. Aaron Dupree. Aaron, thanks so much for being a guest today. Well, thank you, Mark. It's great to have the opportunity to talk with your audience. So can you start off by you know, introducing yourself and, and your background, obviously a medical background, and then maybe also um, talk about the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare as well? Well, sure. I, I work right now as the Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare, where I lead the groundbreaking work that we're doing. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the Joint Commission, the enterprise is actually comprised of three nonprofits. The Joint Commission accredits about 90% of the hospitals in the United States and also accredits healthcare organizations in a number of settings. So that's actually one of the nonprofits that people in healthcare are generally familiar with. There are two other nonprofits, Joint Commission Resources, and that's essentially our education consulting arm. And the newest nonprofit, the newest branch of the Joint Commission Enterprise is the Center for Transforming Healthcare, and that's the branch that I lead. It was formally launched in 2009. And the mission of the center is to transform healthcare into a high reliability industry. And yeah, how did you get involved um, from being a physician, getting involved in healthcare quality, then getting involved in Lean and Six Sigma? Sure. I was, I was actually surrounded by quality principles as a child, uh, which I learned later. I grew up in Michigan, and my father was a mechanical engineer for the auto industry at General Motors and actually worked with Deming and others from Deming's team during his time there. So, you know, without even realizing it, I think it was infusing my home life as I grew up. <laughs> yeah, and we, we share, we, we, we discovered that when we we talked before. The listeners don't know that. Yeah, that we share some common yeah. background. There. We're we're both from Michigan. Our uh, dads were both engineers in the auto industry, and there was both that um, that exposure to Dr. Deming. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. So I became an obstetrician gynecologist. Uh, went to medical school, and then as a clinician, I delivered thousands of babies, did hundreds of surgeries. 
Uh, and quite honestly, I saw harm occur to patients that was preventable. I saw the systems not working and I saw horrible things happen. And I saw a need for improvement. I saw a problem and I wanted to fix it, quite frankly. Uh, and I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to undergo Greenbelt training as a physician uh, years ago when that wasn't the case for most physicians. So uh, it really helped to give me the tools to make changes in health. And, and what was that Greenbelt training? Was that sponsored by the hospital or health system where you were practicing? Yeah, exactly. It was sponsored at the healthcare system that I was working. And they actually had had uh, GE come in do the training at the time as, as that organization was building up their own internal training capacity. So it was one of the earlier waves of training at that organization that I was part of. And our class had about 20 people and I was on a project team with four people. Yeah, it was great. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot. Now, a, a, you know, we have listeners who are maybe still in the manufacturing side of things or in other industries and, and, and people who are not around healthcare often don't know about instances of, of preventable harm or how these things type, uh, how these types of things occur in healthcare, even with well-trained uh, people and, um, you know, everybody who obviously, you know, uh, well-educated, cares a lot, works hard. Um, what, what are your, some of your, your thoughts around why these things, why, why harm still occurs? Or maybe, I don't know if there's a story or an example that you could tell about that perhaps? Well, I think are exposed to the amazing things that are happening in healthcare today. I mean, there's robotic surgery, there's new therapeutics, there's innovation everywhere, right? Healthcare in the United States is really amazing. Yet with all of that comes an increase in complexity and an increase in risk, quite frankly. And that risk is high. Um, you know, we don't have reliable estimates, but, you know, studies show that healthcare workers wash their hands only 40% of the time. And those not from healthcare, you know, that impacts the event of healthcare-associated infections. So many, many healthcare-associated infections are preventable, and hand hygiene is one of the simplest things to do. You'd think it's simple, but it's not so simple, right? Only 40% of the time. So that complexity and what's on the frontline staff, what's on their plate right now, is all part of it. I mean, medicine right now is essentially practiced like a craftsman's art. I mean, it's practiced like the art of medicine, yet it's more complex um, than many, many things today. And yet we're still approaching it uh, in a very uh, one-off way, as opposed to really taking performance principles and applying them to healthcare. Yeah, and, and taking a look at systems and... I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts about high reliability organizations since you use that term before we delve into uh, Lean and Six Sigma. For, for people who aren't aware, how would you summarize wh what the high reliability organization principles are? Well, first of all, it's not healthcare today is the first thing. Mm -hmm. But what it is, the principles, really, it, it's those organizations, those industries that are complex, that are risky, that go for long periods of time without accidents, without harm. And they really pretty much go by, the term was coined in the late 1980s by Kathleen Roberts at the University of California in Berkeley and other researchers there. And they actually, <clears throat> uh, Wyke and Sutcliffe are additional folks that have done this research. And, Typically in healthcare, they're referring to their principles. 
And what these organizations do really well is they anticipate harm. They anticipate it really well with a preoccupation with failure, okay? A sensitivity to operations, under, which is something all of you as lean folks understand how operations differ in different places. The Wyke and Sutcliffe principles, and for those of you that aren't familiar with Wyke and Sutcliffe's work, their book, Managing the Unexpected, is really, really a great primer on high reliability organizations, or HROs, as you will hear them sometimes referred to as it. But what these organizations do is they also realize that errors will continue to occur, and you can anticipate harm, you can hope that it won't happen, but sometimes it does. And then you have to contain those errors from actually causing harm. And that's really that commitment to resilience that you find in high reliability organizations. And I think the overarching theme that you see with high reliability organizations is a collectful mindfulness. They're all on the same page. They have the same mental model of what they're trying to do, which is have safety first. Safety first is first and foremost. And the, the truth is in healthcare, many people don't even have an awareness that it's an unsafe industry. Mm-hmm. So bringing those reliability principles from nuclear power, from commercial aviation is huge. And we have small pockets of reliability in healthcare. For instance, blood transfusions. That has come a long, long way since the 1970s and early 80s. Anesthesia for a healthy patient, very different than it was in the 1970s. Those small pockets of healthcare have done really well with reliability principles. Yet most of healthcare is still can be very uncoordinated, can be very unsafe. We there were 600 fires in operating rooms last year. There are 40 to 50 wrong site surgeries in this country, best estimates, each week. Each week mm-hmm. in this country. You know, so we're, there's still a fair amount of harm and lack of reliability, whether it's those routine safety processes like hand hygiene or patient mm-hmm. identification, and then these horrible adverse things, these never events that still happen. Yeah, yeah. well, I had a chance um, last year here in San Antonio, there's a um, uh, academy for um, high school students who are transitioning into their first years of college. They have what they call their health professions academy, and these these are kids who want to be nurses or physicians and, and all sorts of different career paths. And they're getting started in, you know, um, uh, kind of initial health jobs. And um, I was talking to them and, in their class and I brought up the idea of, of preventable harm and, and the need and hopefully the opportunity for them to be involved in these improvements. And, you know, kind of even talking about the idea of, you know, one instance of a wrong site surgery, like their jaws dropped and hit the table. And I'm like, realize, okay, well, I'm making this a little bit, you know, too real for them. Like, you know, and I asked them, well, what, or they, they asked, well, how does that happen? And, and I asked them, I said, well, how, how do you think things like that might happen? And they, they were really, uh, they had good instincts. They said, well, it's probably miscommunications or, lack of planning or, you know, they, 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 kind oh, of, interesting. they, they yeah. were very intuitive. They didn't say, oh, well, those doctors are bad. Like they, mm. I was really impressed with, with their maturity and sense, you know, about how things like that occur. Cause it is shocking. Right. Well, and part of it is really the history of medicine in that it performance was really thought to really just revolve around having a good doctor. And that that's all that mattered in healthcare was as long as you had a good doctor, you got you received good healthcare. Well, 
that's not the case in healthcare in 2015. You know, the complexity, mm-hmm. it, exactly, it gets at handoffs. There's 20 people involved in the care. I mean, there have been studies that looked at the care in the emergency room. If you're there for a few hours, I mean, the number of process steps, is sta- it's staggering. It's like 10,000. And, you know, the the instances of harm in healthcare are real. It's It's painful to think about. You know, people fall. People think, oh, somebody fell. Well, people die from falling. 11,000 people die each year from falls in the hospital. Mm. I mean, that's the size of the town I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, before we talk about you know, some of the other you know, uh, pockets of success and, and things that are happening to, to improve the problem of preventable harm, you know, there's so many different studies and numbers that get bandied about. Um, you know, the study from uh, to, to air as human, you know, estimated 44 to 98,000 deaths each year. There's more recent studies that put the number anywhere between 200 and 400,000. And, and these all, you know, it's like there's all, you know, all these different estimates have some flaw in their approach. Um, are there certain numbers that you think are more reliable or how could we determine numbers think, the best we can? Yeah. yeah, I think there are no reliable estimates quite frankly. We know that patients are being harmed, but the numbers and the estimates vary really because there's no central source of information. And also everyone measures harm in a different way. What a patient thinks is harm, a surgeon might not necessarily, and vice versa. And even across one discipline in healthcare, some of my OBGYN colleagues would, some would say something is a complication, others wouldn't. So we don't even mm. agree on what harm is in healthcare, which makes it difficult to measure. And exactly, each of the studies that you mentioned, they measure it a little bit differently. So what we do know is that every single case of harm is one too many. I mean, it could mm-hmm. be your brother, it could be your mother, it doesn't matter. And that's where really. Uh, the center, the work we do here and the participating healthcare organizations that we work with, they use robust process improvement methods and tools. And we coined that term here at the Joint Commission to really include Lean Six Sigma and change management tools. Uh, And we use that approach here internally for our business processes and we partner with organizations across the country and around the world with that approach. Yeah, so can you maybe elaborate on that? Because I'm working with a health system right now that has me in to help them with Lean and Kaizen. And to them, that's a piece of robust process improvement, which is one of the key factors towards becoming a high reliability organization. So could, could you elaborate a little bit more on how you think those different methodologies work together and how the center explains that or helps people with that? Yeah, well, it's all about improving the big Q, quality. and. Quality is really everything. It's the performance of the organization. And these healthcare organizations are all trying to deliver great care, let's face it. I mean, they don't want to cause patients harm. They're not going to work to cause harm each day. And these tools can really help to bring out, to remove the inefficiencies, the waste in healthcare today. They can improve the accuracy of the many, many process steps that occur, get rid of variation where there shouldn't be variation. They can improve the effectiveness of healthcare. 
and in, importantly, ensure that healthcare is really aligned with the values and goals of a patient. And to do all of that in healthcare, we need acceptance and accountability over the massive changes that that requires in healthcare. Because it's it's a 180. I mean, from where healthcare is at today, it's these are big changes. It's transformation. And how do you manage that change? And so the change management, those tools are really really important. And, and fact, many organizations in healthcare are starting to realize that that's actually where they need to start mm-hmm. is with change management. Yeah. Um, so I think they're all very important. We, I mean, healthcare, with where it's at, with this level of harm, we need, you know, the toolkit needs to be fairly large, you know, yeah. and I think the importance is really having that consistency as an organization around your performance, a disciplined, systematic approach to improvement. Yeah. And an organization at, from the leadership level needs to bring that in and support that ever effort and allow the frontline staff to have it be the way they do business, yeah. that they have the tools to improve. So I'd be curious to hear more about um, your views and the center views on the change management piece, because I think you know our listeners here know Lean, they know probably Six Sigma and how Lean and Six Sigma can fit together. I, I see a lot of cases where organizations struggle um, because they're you know, they're not using, you know, the kind of maybe the full lean principles and engaging everybody in improvement. They're they're forcing changes or they're only focused on cost or they're doing things that might not. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's it's uh, maybe not a full, complete approach to lean. And maybe a lot of those those issues, lack of communication or, or lack of engagement come down to change management. Or, or how do you see that? Absolutely. I mean, I have an example from a healthcare organization that I worked at previously, and there was a big initiative that I was leading, and I had my uh, change management skills. And, you know, I was getting some pressure from above to move forward in a certain direction. And I, I personally knew it was going to be a waste of time because one of the key stakeholders, having done a, a real stakeholder analysis, was very resistant and was going to subvert the process. And so if I didn't get that person on board, it was a, you know, we had great things to, you know, work on and deliver from a solution perspective, but, and the frontline and middle management folks were totally excited about it. But one of the key leaders was uh, not totally there. And I didn't really know this person. I mean, I knew of him, we've been in meetings together, but we hadn't really worked on anything together. So how was I really going to approach that? And using the tools to work through that, you know, I came up with a strategy, you know, think working through that, that changed the dynamic and he became the biggest cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens over and over again. When you use the change management skills effectively, you get people on your team, you figure out how to work through those difficult situations well, and it seems like a lot of it, what, like even in the scenario you're describing, it takes yeah. um, some time, it takes some effort, it takes leadership skills of trying to understand um, somebody's perspective instead of just trying to force a change on them. Uh, and, and I see you know, a lot of organizations, my, my favorite question back of people, you know, kind of ask, you know, we're having trouble engaging our physicians and, and there's a tone that often makes it sound like they're blaming the physicians. <laughs> and usually mm-hmm, my first answer, mm-hmm. my first question back is, well, what are you doing to engage them? Like this is it's it's a very active process that engagement or buy in doesn't just magically happen or we, we probably shouldn't expect it should happen after sending out one memo. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's what we see here a lot, too, at the Joint Commission. It, 
it does take time to engage the stakeholders, but it, I think it actually saves time, quite frankly, mm -hmm. because you end up developing solutions that are more sustainable and you, I mean, the organization really can rock and roll then. I mean, then you're really transforming things. And it's true, bringing the, for instance, in the case that you mentioned, bringing physicians on board, it's really about, I mean, they want to improve care. They don't want their patients hurt, mm -hmm. but they oftentimes don't, they don't understand systems and the complexity right. of healthcare today. They, they don't either. They're learning this about safety and reliability too. So to bring them in and ask for their opinion and what matters to them, that starts to change the entire dynamic of the conversation and the solution actually. Yeah. You will develop better solutions with the engagement of those folks. Well, I think you, you make a great point that that investment in time can lead to um, time savings down the road. There's there's a Toyotaism. I'm, I'm I'm sure you've probably heard of this idea of go slow to go fast. Right. That we're laying the foundations. We're we're talking to people, and you know a lot of times I, I, I you know people are impatient. They realize you know to their credit, okay, we need to improve quality. We need to reduce patient harm. We've we've got no time to waste. Rush, rush, rush. And then people sometimes feel. Um, you know, steamrollered or they get defensive and, and you know, we, we have things uh, slow down. Absolutely. If you don't have the buy-in and you're implementing, rolling out something, it's it will fail. And ultimately, facilitating change requires planning. It requires inspiring people. So there are tools in change management about inspiring people. Because unless there are some people that are naturals at that, but most people don't think that way or act that way. So we all need to learn those ways to inspire people around us to be up for the big change because change is difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then importantly, how do you launch that change initiative, right? There are certain yeah. ways to launch successfully and to align the operations around that launch. There are tools to help with that. And then importantly, how do how can you sustain that change over time, right, going right. forward? Yeah, so. I forget whose definition it is. Um, I heard somebody say that uh, a definition of leadership was uh, inspiring people. So that's what you're, you're used to that word remind, reminded me. Inspiring people mm -hmm. to do things they might not otherwise do. And that's different, I think, than it's certainly not a matter of forcing them to do it. But um, change leadership, um, I think, uh, you know, re requires people to, um, to to find find common ground that w where people want to participate in lean or six sigma initiatives. And I think that's a difference than um, you know a lot of organizations say. Well, it'll be faster. We'll just force them to do it, and I, I don't mm. think that really works. Yeah, force feeding doesn't usually work. <laughs> At the center, we've actually developed a great um, tool to inspire leadership around reliability and performance improvement. It's called the High Reliability Self-Assessment Tool. It's an organizational assessment tool around leadership, culture, and performance improvement. And it really allows a senior leadership team to talk about some of those issues and come to consensus and inspire them to take those first steps towards really having an approach to performance and reliability. So uh, that uh, that, some... that's coming out uh, actually later this year from oh, the center. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was it'll be available about... to all accredited organizations. Oh, okay. I was, I was going to ask if that was something online, but not yet, later this year. It, it's coming very okay. soon. <laughs> okay. It'll be early this fall. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, so in, in, in your talks with different organizations, I'm curious, maybe other than some of the communication or change management issues, do, are, are there other barriers, maybe particular barriers in healthcare that, that slow or prevent the adoption of, of Lean and Six Sigma uh, as, as a way to improve? Well, I think we just spent time talking about the biggest barrier is that it requires change and nobody mm -hmm. likes change. I mean, leaders will put up questions about the time and the money and the return on investment uh, without understanding that it will actually pay for itself really quickly. Um, the thinking that if they just train a few people in the organization and that's enough, it's, it's not. It mm -hmm. has to become the way the organization does their business. There needs to be eventually a critical mass of understanding of the principles. That's really, really important. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I wish you know, would, would never happen is, you know, coming in, into a hospital to, uh, to do training and the, you know, senior leaders, they, they, they've got a bias. So they think, well, it's the frontline staff that need fixing. And, you know, a, a senior executive or sometimes it's the CEO, you know, will come in and, you know, kick off things and then, and then leave. And mm. like, oh, I, it's, I always enjoy it so much more. And I'm so much more optimistic about things in those cases where the CEO and the CMO and senior leaders are there and in the room and they're, they're learning and, and they're, they're participating in these discussions and they're leading, you know, they're, they're doing, they're laying the groundwork for what's going to happen outside of that training class, which, um, you know, it's, it's something that can't just fall on a few individuals, like you said, or the frontline staff and managers. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the best to see when you really see the senior leaders sitting down wanting to learn the, the principles in detail, too. You know they're very invested. And it's, it's, it's difficult to see. There is a lot of that where the leadership believes it's just a problem with the frontline staff. And if we just got a different middle, middle manager or this or that, mm -hmm. it'll fix that problem. And the bottom line is we're all human. Yeah. We're all flawed in different mm -hmm. ways. And Part of what Lean and Six Sigma, the approach can do, is really put in better processes in your entire organization around hiring, you know, for instance, or, you know, wherever in, in the chain your issues are, potentially. Um, it can help support that. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're on the same page, page here. You're talking about, well, you know, the hiring practices. And one of my favorite questions to ask if, if people are kind of going down the blame the employees path or, well, we've got bad employees or our employees won't have good ideas or, or things like that is ask, well, who, you know, who hired them or who demotivated them to the point where now you think they don't want to participate. Those are, those are system issues. Yeah. 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 And again, it comes down to leadership and that positive spin of supporting those around you and allowing them to do their best work. Yeah. And supporting them and giving them the tools to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the tools are really, you know, lean and Six Sigma and really those allow frontline staff to be innovative and to be creative and to work mm -hmm. together as teams across silos. I mean, that's what the approach really does. Yeah. So let, let's let's delve into that a little bit more. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, the overlap or the blending or the combination of lean and Six Sigma. And, and maybe in that discussion, you know, if you've got a, a favorite success story or an example about how that's helped in healthcare, it would be great to hear. Lean and Six Sigma, the tools are really complementary. I mean, that's truly my belief. And I'd love to have a longer, you know, philosophical conversation with you because I know there are, you know, many proponents of either methodology and those of the blended. And 
Um, you know, I'm speaking from really my own training and knowing that, uh, which I'm happy to always learn more. Uh, but it's really that, like I said earlier, we need all of the tools. And if there's any limitation to some of the approach of one or the other, we can't have that in healthcare. I mean, we just, we need a very robust approach uh, to it. And I think, you know, lean in healthcare today has actually brought in some of the Six Sigma principles and vice versa. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. seeing some of that overlap in both directions, quite frankly, as it evolves. You know, I'm curious what you're seeing too, Mark, from your perspective, but that's, you know, I'm starting to see merging of sort of original concepts anyways with mm -hmm. the way things are being implemented at various organizations. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that there's, um, you know, there's overlap and we, we shouldn't argue about, well, it's, you know, statistical process control. Is that a lean method or a Six Sigma method? I'm like, well, it actually predates both. And so <laughs> exactly. you know, let's let's use uh, methods that work. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, there are statistical methods in Six Sigma. I mean, it's 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 math. It's statistics like, you know, there it's it's good. Uh, valid stuff. My my only complaint has been, um, you know, and, and readers of my blog will know this is that I think sometimes there's just sort of a, in in the blending there becomes a blurring or sort of a watering down of lean, mm -hmm. um, where you know I I see a lot of hospitals um, doing a great job with kind of you know a lean culture change and they have you know some Six Sigma experts. Um, black belts and, and people who go in as needed and go help with, with projects. And I, I think that's a great approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think organizations are really learning how to integrate these themes into their work, uh, you know, around that leadership commitment, the project deployment, the management approach that they're using around all of it, when to bring in the statistics, when to use what tools, the more that we can bring of that learning to healthcare, that's what we want to do here at the center. And that's why we really partner with healthcare organizations and the people doing the work across the country mm -hmm. and around the world. Like I said, some of our work is uh, international too. Yeah. So in, in the course of some of that partnering, let me, let me bring it back to the second part of the other question, uh, you know, kind of a recent or a favorite uh, success story of um, working with somebody to help improve quality and patient safety. Yeah, well, one of our recent projects was actually preventing falls with injury. Um, you know, I mentioned that we'd been focused on that. And we had five of our center hospitals, and these are leading hospitals and healthcare systems that partner with us um, and the staff here, and they decreased falls with injury by 62%. I mean, that wow. decrease is greater than any other collaborative published to date in the literature. Um, you know, and if other organizations use that robust approach that was used here by those organizations in the center. If a 200-bed hospital used that robust approach to falls, preventing falls, then they would avoid 72, 72 people falls with injury hmm. and a million dollars costs avoided. I mean, I don't know what healthcare organization can't, I mean, they need to do that today, right? Yeah. The shrinking margins mm -hmm. in healthcare are astonishing. You know, so that's a, for instance, where really the blended approach of all three legs of that stool, the lean, six sigma, and change management have really helped. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's more and more studies. I mean, I think it's intuitive to a lot of people, and, and, and this would have been Dr. Deming's argument that improving quality and, and, and patient safety, I think is a, a big part of, important part of quality, that improving quality leads to lower costs. And uh, we're starting to see more and more uh, published studies in healthcare around 
patient safety initiatives um, having, thankfully, a positive effect on the hospital's bottom line. And it seems like, you know, with, with reimbursement uh, complexities and, and different incentives and penalties, it seems like it's a or, or rewards. That's uh, a kind of an always changing landscape. But I mean, it seems like things are heading in the in the right direction in terms of uh, cost, safety, quality, all being improved at the same time. Right. Absolutely. Those organizations that have really invested in Lean and Six Sigma and change management, I mean, they're seeing returns on investment easily of four to five to one, you know, so that the, it's there. Um, but it does take, you know, kind of moving forward. That evidence base is just developing in healthcare. It's relatively new. We sort of have to understand that it just makes sense that if you improve your processes, you're going to improve um, the cost. You know, you're going to create better value overall. Well, and I think thankfully we're at the point where you know if people are skeptics who would say, "Well, that that's that sounds good in theory." Um, you know, thankfully there's been you know the journal articles with that level of rigor that are uh, helping prove this out. Yeah, well, there are a lot of skeptics, you know, that think healthcare can just be run the way that it has been forever, um, and. Ultimately, we're not at a place now. I mean, it's just the right thing to do, given mm -hmm. the patients harmed in healthcare today, number one, number two and three, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it, it's certainly the right thing to do. There are some who frame it as a, a moral obligation to protect patients or an ethical uh, responsibility. Um, and, I, and I think that's that's a, a pretty reasonable way of looking at it. But the, the fact that uh, it's helping the bottom line. Um, I, I would call that gravy, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's really, you know, healthcare executives and boards, I mean, they're often uncomfortable with this information. And it's really got to be an all teach, all learn type of situation, um, you know, to understand what quality is and, and become experts themselves. Mm -hmm. So do, do you have any other thoughts maybe on that point as, as we wrap up here, things that you've seen um, that help influence executives and boards through through your role, other things the Joint Commission or the Joint, the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare are, are doing to get more people, more executives and board members involved? Yeah, I think that, you know, I had mentioned the high reliability self-assessment tool that's coming out. And we've also recently put out a new patient safety systems chapter that's available to all the public. Everybody can download the patient safety systems chapter, and it's an excellent primer for leadership, actually. It's all about leadership commitment, the things to do to build a culture and performance infrastructure. I mean, quite honestly, I hope for that because as a clinician, as an OBGYN, you know, that's... You know, if, if that type of leadership had been in place, you know, certain things wouldn't have happened. I mean, one of the things that I saw that was one of my many moments of, you know, transformation for me doing this work is, you know, I was taking care of a young, healthy woman, uh, her first pregnancy, and the pregnancy went really well. I mean, she was in great condition, and she went into labor. And my partner was on call that night. He was an excellent practitioner, super vigilant, great bedside manner, all of those things. And the woman had a great labor, progressed very nicely. And when she got to fully dilated, the time when you push the baby out, the baby's heart rate, it just bottomed out. I mean, it flatlined. Mm -hmm. And he called for forceps to assist having the baby delivered. And the nurses on the unit were not familiar with forceps. 
they ran to the supply closet to get them, mm. and the ones they brought back and opened were the wrong ones. They had been labeled incorrectly mm. and couldn't be used in the situation. They ended up having to open like six more sets of forceps before they found the correct ones. Minutes and minutes. Uh, it's, and I'm serious. Yeah. The baby did not do well as a result. No, I mean, yeah, those of us who that don't... That was a moment of transformation for me. I, I, I can believe it. And I'm just curious for you know, those of us who, do, who don't have your expertise in this, we hear the word forceps. And is, is it a matter that forceps are not used as often as, as they used to be, and hence the unavailability or unfamiliarity? Or... Right. I went in those days, that particular time, it was a time of, I would say, transition where not as many practitioners or organizations were as familiar with forceps. In the old days, everybody, all the obstetricians were great at forceps, but there has been some transition over the last 20 years. And some practitioners are great and do them very well. And other folks did maybe one or two forceps during their entire training period time, which is not enough to be an expert. Um, so it really varies um, by organization, because if you have experts there that can teach folks to do it safely, then mm -hmm. you'll have some of those skills transferred on. But it's, it's becoming less and less as organizations look at some of the complications from those procedures, and there are fewer and fewer people really capable of training at that level of expertise. And the safety of cesarean sections has gotten better. And I mean, your, your story, you know, kind of makes me think back to these high reliability principles, um, you know, an organization with, um, you know, sensitivity to operations, I think pays attention to what, what a lot of people consider mundane details about materials management and, and room stocking and labeling. And, you know, I think to your point, uh, the best OBGYN in a bad system can't be as successful as they need to be, and their patients won't get the outcomes that they need. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you and, and the Joint Commission and your colleagues there are, are helping promote these ideas, that you're working with organizations. Um, maybe can you can wrap up, um, if you want to give a, a final mention of the Center for Transforming Healthcare and, and how people can engage with you or how they can find you online. That would be a great way to wrap up. Absolutely. Uh, again, we partner with healthcare organizations, not just hospitals, but healthcare organizations, all settings. We're at www.centerfortransforminghealthcare.org, and we would love to partner with you. Uh, we work with organizations in a variety of ways, and we always have uh, new, great, innovative, leading-edge work going on, and we work with organizations to support them when they're having difficulty with these complex topics and, and take it from there. We look forward to hearing from you. Well, I hope people will reach out and uh, engage with you um, on a level beyond the regular accreditation interactions. So um, thanks. Exactly. It's great that uh, you're... Work... Sorry to interrupt. No, that's right. Our work, I really want to clarify for the healthcare audience, the work of the center is separate from accreditation. It is very, and so people do need to understand we are part of the enterprise, but the work in the center is really for organizations to help them improve. Uh, we have a big firewall with accreditation, so that does not pass over to the surveyors. Hmm. The work that they do with the center, that's a big point to make to healthcare. Okay, great. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, and uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm glad you're helping people solve these challenges. So again, our guest has been uh, Dr. Aaron Dupree. Aaron, thank you so much for taking time to talk today. No, thank you, Mark. Have a great day. You too. Bye -bye. Thanks for listening. 
This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.